0: Chapter Ten of Zanoni by Edward Bulwer Lytton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Between two worlds, life hovers like a star, twixt night and morn. Byron. When Glyndon left Viola, as recorded in the concluding chapter of the second division of this work, he was absorbed again in those mystical desires and conjectures which the haunting recollection of Zanoni always served to create and as he wandered through the streets he was scarcely conscious of his own movements till in the mechanism of custom he found himself in the midst of one of the noble collections of pictures which form the boast of those italian cities whose glory is in the past thither he had been wont almost daily to repair for the gallery contained some of the finest specimens of a master especially the object of his enthusiasm and study There, before the works of Salvador, he had often paused in deep and earnest reverence. The striking characteristic of that artist is the vigor of will, void of the elevated idea of abstract beauty, which furnishes a model and archetype. To the genius of more illustrious order, the singular energy of the man hews out of the rock a dignity of his own. His images have majesty, not of the god, but the savage, utterly free like the sublimer schools from the commonplace of imitation apart from them from the conventional littleness of the real he grasps the imagination and compels it to follow him not to the heaven but through all that is most wild and fantastic upon earth a sorcery not of the starry magician but of the gloomy wizard a man of romance whose heart beats strongly gripping art with the hand of iron and forcing it to idealize the scenes of his actual life before this powerful will glyndon drew back more awed and admiring than before the calmer beauty which rose from the soul of raphael like venus from the deep and now as waking from his reverie he stood opposite to that wild and magnificent gloom of nature which frowned on him from the canvas the very leaves on those gnome-like distorted trees seemed to rustle sibylline secrets in his ear those rugged and sombre apennines the cataract that dashed between suited more than the actual senses would have done the mood and temper of his mind the stern uncouth forms at rest on the crags below dwarfed by the giant size of matter that reigned around them impressed him with the might of nature and the littleness of man as in genius of the more spiritual caste the living man and the soul that lives in him are studiously made the prominent image and the mere accessories of the scene kept down and cast back as if to show that the exile from paradise is yet the monarch of the outward world so in the landscapes of salvador the tree the mountain the waterfall become the principal and man himself dwindles to the accessory the matter seems to reign supreme and the true lord to creep beneath its stupendous shadow inert matter giving interest to the mortal man not the mortal man to the inert matter a terrible philosophy in art while some of these thoughts passed through the mind of the painter he felt his arm touched and saw nico by his side a great master said nico but i do not love the school i do not love but i am awed by it we love the beautiful and serene but we have a feeling as deep as love for the terrible and dark true said nico thoughtfully and yet that feeling is only a superstition The nursery, with its tales of ghosts and goblins, is the cradle of many of our impressions in the world. But art should not seek to pander to our ignorance. Art should respect only truths. I confess that Raphael pleases me less, because I have no sympathy for his subjects. His saints and virgins are to me only men and women, and from what source should painting then take its themes?" "'From history, without doubt,' returned Nico, pragmatically those great roman actions which inspire men with sentiments of liberty and valor and the virtues of republic i wish the cartoons of raphael had illustrated the story of horatai but it remains for france and her republic to give to prosperity the new and true school which could never have arisen in a country of priestcraft and illusion and the saints and virgins of raphael are to you only men and women repeated Glyndon, going back to Nico's candid confession in amaze, and scarcely hearing the deductions the Frenchman drew from his proposition. Assuredly, (laughs) ha-ha, and Nico laughed hideously. Do you ask me to believe in the calendar or what? But the ideal? The ideal, interrupted Nico. Stuff, the Italian critics and your English Reynolds have turned your head. They are so fond of their gusto grande, and their ideal beauty that speaks to the soul. Soul? Is there a soul? I understand a man when he talks of composing for a refined taste, for an educated and intelligent reason, for a sense that comprehends truths. But as for the soul, bah! We are but modifications of matter, and painting is a modification of matter also." Glyndon turned his eyes from the pictures before him to Nico, and from Nico to the picture the dogmatists gave a voice to the thoughts which the sight of the pitcher had awakened he shook his head without reply tell me said nico abruptly that impostor zanoni oh i have now learned his name and quackeries. forsooth what did he say to thee of me of thee nothing but to warn me against thy doctrines ah that was all said nico he is a notable inventor and since when we last met i unmasked his delusions I thought he might retaliate by some tale of slander. Unmask his delusions? How? A dull and long story. He wished to teach an old doting friend of mine his secrets of prolonged life and philosophical alchemy. I advised thee to renounce so discreditable an acquaintance. With that, nicot nodded significantly, and not wishing to be further questioned went his way. Glyndon's mind at that moment had escaped to his art and the comments and presence of nico had been no welcome interruption he turned from the landscape of salvator and his eye falling on a nativity by correggio the contrast between the two ranks of genius struck him as a discovery that exquisite repose that perfect sense of beauty that strength without effort that breathing moral of high art which speaks to the mind through the eye and raises the thoughts by the aid of tenderness and love to the regions of awe and wonder ay that was the true school he quitted the gallery with reluctant steps and inspired ideas he sought his own home here pleased not to find the sober mervale he leaned his face on his hands and endeavoured to recall the words of zanoni in their last meeting yes he felt Nico's talk even on art was a crime it debased the imagination itself to mechanism could he who saw nothing in the soul but a combination of matter prate of schools that should excel raphael yes art was magic and as he owned the truth of the aphorism he could comprehend that in magic there may be religion for religion is an essential to art his old ambition freeing itself from the frigid prudence with which mervale sought to desecrate all images less substantial than the golden calf of the world revived and stirred and kindled the subtle detection of what he conceived to be an error in the school he had hitherto adopted made more manifest to him by the green commentary of Nico, seemed to open to him a new world of invention. He seized the happy moment. He placed before him the colors in the canvas. Lost in his conceptions of a fresh ideal, his mind was lifted aloft into the airy realms of beauty, dark thoughts, unhallowed desires vanished. Zononi was right. The material world shrunk from his gaze. He viewed nature from a mountain top afar. And as the waves of his unquiet heart became calm and still, again the angel eyes of Viola beamed on them as a holy star. Locking himself in his chamber, he refused even the visits of Mervale. Intoxicated with the pure air of his fresh existence, he remained for three days, and almost nights, absorbed in his employment. But on the fourth morning came that reaction to which all labor is exposed. He woke listless and fatigued and as he cast his eyes on the canvas the glory seemed to be gone from it humiliating recollections of the great masters he aspired to rival forced them upon him humiliating recollections of the great masters he aspired to rival forced themselves upon him defects before unseen magnified themselves into deformities in his languid and discontented eyes he touched and retouched but his hand failed him he threw down his instruments in despair he opened his casement the day without was bright and lovely the street was crowded with that life which is ever so joyous and affluent in the animated population of naples he saw the lover as he passed conversing with his mistress by those mute gestures which have survived all changes of language the same now as when the etruscan painted yon vases in the museo borbonico light from without beckoned his youth to its mirth and its pleasures and the dull walls within, lately large enough to comprise heaven and earth, seem now cabined and confined as a felon's prison. He welcomed the step of Mervale at his threshold, and unbarred the door. "'And this is all that you have done?' said Mervale, glancing disdainfully at the canvas. "'Is it for this that you have shut yourself out from the sunny days and moonlit nights of Naples?' "'While the fit was on me, I bask in a brighter sun, and imbibe the voluptuous luxury of a softer moon.' You own that the fit is over. Well, that's some sign of returning to sense. After all, it is better to dab canvas for three days than make a fool of yourself for life. This little siren, be dumb. I hate to hear you name her. Mervale drew his chair nearer to Glyndon's, thrust his hands deep in his breeches pockets, stretched his legs, and was about to begin a serious strain of expostulation when a knock was heard at the door, and Nico, without waiting for leave, obtruded his ugly head good day mon cher confrere i wish to speak to you I and you have been at work i see this is all very well a bold outline great freedom in that right hand but hold is the composition good you have not got the great pyramidal form do you think too that you have lost the advantage of contrast in this figure since the right leg is put forward surely the arm should be put back Pist- but that little finger's very fine mervale detested nico for all speculators utopians alders of the world and wanderers from the high-road were equally hateful to him but he could have hugged the frenchman at that moment he saw in glyndon's expressive countenance all the weariness and disgust he endured after so rapt a study to be pratted about pyramidal forms and right arms and right legs the accidents of the art the whole conception to be overlooked and the criticism to end in approval of the little finger." "'Oh,' said Glendon, peevishly throwing the cloth over his design, "'enough of my poor performance. What is it you have to say to me?' "'In the first place,' said Nicot, huddling himself together upon a stool, "'in the first place, this signor Zanoni, this second Cagliostro, who disputes my doctrines, I am not vindictive. As Helvetius says, our errors arise from our passions. I keep mine in order, but it is virtuous to hate the cause of mankind. I would I had that in denouncing and judging of Signor Zanoni at Paris." And Nico's small eyes shot fire, and he gnashed his teeth. "'Have you any new cause to hate him?' "'Yes,' said Nico fiercely. "'Yes, I hear he's courting the girl I mean to marry.' "'You? Whom do you speak of?' "'The celebrated Pisani. She's divinely handsome. She would make my fortune in a republic and a republic we shall have before the year is out." Mervale rubbed his hands and chuckled. Glyndon colored with rage and shame. "'Do you know the Signora Pisani? Have you ever spoken to her?' "'Not yet. But when I make up my mind to do anything, it is soon done. I am about to return to Paris. They write me word that a handsome wife advances the career of a patriot. The age of prejudice is over. The sublimer virtues begin to be understood. I shall take back the handsomest wife in Europe." "'Be quiet. What are you about?' said Mervale, seizing Glendon as he saw him advance towards the Frenchman, his eyes sparkling and his hands clenched. "'Sir,' said Glendon, between his teeth, "'you know not of whom you thus speak. Do you affect to suppose that Viola Pisani would accept you?' "'Not if she could get a better offer,' said Mervale, looking up to the ceiling. "'Better offer? You don't understand me,' said Nico i jean nicot propose to marry the girl marry her others may make her more liberal offers but no one i apprehend would make one so honourable i alone have pity on her friendless situation besides according to the dawning state of things one will always in france be able to get rid of a wife whenever one wishes we shall have new laws of divorce do you imagine that an italian girl and in no country in the world are maidens It seems more chaste. Would refuse the hand of an artist for the settlements of a prince? No, I think better of the Pisani than you do. I shall hasten to introduce myself to her." "'I wish you all success, Monsieur Nico," said Mervale, raising and shaking him heartily by the hand. Glynin cast at them both a disdainful glance. "'Perhaps, Monsieur Nico," said he at length, constraining his lips into a bitter smile, "'perhaps you may have rivals.' "'So much the better,' replied M. Nicot, carelessly kicking his heels together, and appearing absorbed in admiration at the size of his large feet. "'I myself admire Viola Pisani. "'Every painter must. "'I may offer marriage as well as yourself. "'That would be folly in you, though wisdom in me. "'You would not know how to draft profit from the speculation. "'Cher Conferre, you have prejudices. "'You do not dare to say you would make profit from your own wife?' the virtuous Cato. Lend his wife to a friend. I love virtue, and I cannot do better than imitate Cato. But to be serious, I do not fear you as a rival. You are good-looking, and I am ugly, but you are irresolute, and I decisive. While you are uttering fine phrases, I shall say simply, I have bon état. Will you marry me? So do your worst, cher confrere. Au revoir. Behind the scenes. So saying, Nico rose, stretched his long arms and short legs, yawned till he showed all his ragged teeth from ear to ear, pressed down his cap on his shaggy head, and with an air of defiance, and casting over his left shoulder a glance of triumph and malice at the indignant Glendon, sauntered out of the room. Mervale burst into a fit of laughter. See how your viola is estimated by your friend. A fine victory to carry off from the ugliest dog between Lapland and the Kalmucks. Glendon was yet too indignant to answer when a new visitor arrived. It was Zanoni himself, Mervale, on whom the appearance and aspect of this personage imposed a kind of reluctant deference, which he was unwillingly to acknowledge, and still more to betray, nodded to Glendon, and saying simply, More when I see you again, left the painter and his unexpected visitor. I see, said Zanoni, lifting the cloth from the canvas, that you have not slighted the advice I gave you courage young artist this is an escape from the schools this is full of bold self-confidence of real genius you had no nico no mervale at your elbow when this image of true beauty was conceived charmed back to his art by this unlooked-for praise glyndon replied modestly i thought well of my design till this morning and then i was disenchanted of my happy persuasion say rather that unaccustomed to continuous labour you were fatigued with your employment that is true shall i confess it i begin to miss the world without it seemed to me as if while i lavished my heart and my youth upon the visions of beauty i was losing the beautiful realities of actual life i envied the merry fisherman singing as he passed below my casement and the lover conversing with his mistress and said zanoni with an encouraging smile Do you blame yourself for the natural and necessary return to earth in which even the most habitual visitor of the heavens of invention seeks his relaxation and repose man's genius is but a bird that cannot always be on the wing when the craving for the actual world is felt it is a hunger that must be appeased they who command best the ideal enjoy ever most the real see the true artist when abroad in men's thoroughfares ever observant ever diving into the heart ever alive to the least as to the greatest of the complicated truths of existence descending to what pendants would call the trivial and the frivolous from every mesh in the social web he can disentangle a grace and for him each airy gossamer floats in the gold of the sunlight know you not that round the animalculae that sports in the water there shines a halo as around the star that revolves in bright pastime through space true art finds beauty everywhere in the street in the market-place in the hovel it gathers food for the hive of its thoughts in the mire of politics dante and milton selected pearls for the wreath of song who ever told you that raphael did not enjoy the life without carrying everywhere with him the one inward idea of beauty which attracted and embedded in its own amber every straw at the feet of the dull man trampled into mud as some lord of the forest wanders abroad for its prey and scents and follows it over plain and hill through brake and jungle but seizing it at last bears the quarry to its unwitnessed cave so genius searches through the wood and waste untiringly and eagerly every sense awake every nerve strained to speed and strength for the scattering and flying of images matter that it seizes at last with its mighty talons and bears away with it into solitudes no footstep can invade go seek the world without it is for art the inexhaustible pasture-ground and harvest to the world within you comfort me said glyndon brightening i had imagined my weariness a proof of my deficiency but not now would i speak to you of these labours pardon me if i pass from the toil to the reward you have uttered dim prophecies of my future if i wed one who in the judgment of the sober world would only darken its prospects and obstruct its ambition do you speak from the wisdom which is experience or that which aspires to prediction are they not allied is it not he best accustomed to calculation who can solve at a glance any new problem in the arithmetic of chances you evade my question no but i will adapt my answer to better your comprehension for it is upon this very point that i have sought you listen to me zanoni fixed his eyes earnestly on his listener and continued for the accomplishment of whatever is great and lofty the clear perception of truths is the first requisite truths adapted to the object desired a warrior thus reduces the chances of battle to combinations almost of mathematics he can predict a result if he can but depend on the materials he is forced to employ at such a loss he can cross that bridge in such a time he can reduce that fort still more accurately for he depends less on material causes than ideas at his command can the commander of the pure science or diviner of art If he once perceives the truths that are in him and around, foretell what he can achieve, and in what he is condemned to fail. But this perception of truths is disturbed by many causes—vanity, passion, fear, indolence in himself, ignorance of the fitting means without to accomplish what he designs. He may miscalculate his own forces. He may have no chart of the country he would invade. It is only a peculiar state of the mind that is capable of perceiving truth, and that state is profound serenity. Your mind is fevered by a desire for truth. You would compel it to your embraces. You would ask me to impart to you, without ordeal or preparation, the grandest secrets that exist in nature. But truth can no more be seen by the mind unprepared for it than the sun can draw upon the midst of night. Such a mind receives truth only to pollute it to use the simile of one who has wandered near to the secret of the sublime goetia he who pours water into the muddy well does but disturb the mud what do you intend to do this that you have faculties that may attain to surpassing power that may rank you among those enchanters who greater than the magician leave behind them an enduring influence worshipped wherever beauty is comprehended wherever the soul is sensible of a higher world than that in which matter struggles for crude and incomplete existence but to make available those facilities need i be a prophet to tell you that you must learn to concentrate upon the great objects of all your desires the heart must rest that the mind may be active at present you wander from aim to aim as the ballast of the ship so to the spirit are faith and love With your whole heart, affections, humanity, centered in one object, your mind and aspirations will become equally steadfast and in earnest. Viola is a child as yet. You do not perceive the high nature the trials of life will develop. Pardon me if I say that her soul, purer and loftier than your own, will bear it upward, as a secret hymn carries aloft the spirits of the world. Your nature wants the harmony the music which, as the Pythagoreans wisely taught, at once elevates and soothes, I offer you that music in her love. But am I sure that she loves me?" artist? No. She loves you not at present. Her affections are full of another. But if I could transfer to you, as the lodestone transfers its attraction to the magnet, the love that she has now for me, if I could cause her to see it in you, the ideal of her dreams is such a gift in the power of man? I offer it to you, if your love be lawful, if your faith in virtue, and yourself be deep and loyal. If not, I think you that I would disenchant her with truth to make her adore a falsehood. But if, persisted Glendon, if she be all that you tell me, and if she love you, how can you rob yourself of so priceless a treasure? O shallow and mean heart of man! exclaimed zanoni with unaccustomed passion and vehemence dost thou conceive so little of love as not to know that it sacrifices all love itself for the happiness of the thing it loves hear me and zanoni's face grew pale hear me i press this upon you because i love her and because i fear that with me her fate will be less fair than with yourself why ask not for i will not tell you enough time now presses for your answer it cannot long be delayed, for the night of the third day, from this, all choice will be forbid you." But, said Glendon, still doubting and suspicious, But why this haste? Man, you are not worthy of her when you ask me. All I can tell you here, you should have known yourself. This ravisher, this man of will, this son of old Visconti, unlike you, steadfast, resolute, earnest even in his crimes, never relinquishes an object. But one passion controls his lust, and it is his avarice. The day after his attempt on Viola, his uncle the Cardinal, from whom he has large expectations of land and gold, sent for him and forbade him, on pain of forfeiting all the possessions which his schemes already had parceled out, to pursue with dishonorable designs one whom the Cardinal had heeded and loved from childhood. This is the cause of his present pause from his pursuit. While we speak, the cause expires. Before the hand of the clock reaches the hour of noon, the cardinal will be no more. At this very moment thy friend, Jean-Nicot, is with the Prince. Die. He? Wherefore? To ask what dower shall go with Viola Pisani, the morning that she leaves the palace of the Prince. And how do you know all this? Fool, I'll tell thee again, because a lover is a watcher by day and night, because love never sleeps when danger menaces the beloved one and you it was that informed the cardinal yes and what has been my task might as easily been thine speak thine answer you shall have it on the third day from this be it so put off poor waver thy happiness to the last hour on the third day from this i will ask thee thy resolve and where shall we meet before midnight where you may least expect me you cannot shun me though you may seek to do so stay one moment you condemn me as doubtful irresolute suspicious have i no cause can i yield without a struggle to the strange fascination you exert upon my mind what interest can you have in me a stranger that you should thus dictate to me the gravest action in the life of man do you suppose that any one in his senses would not pause and deliberate and ask himself why should this stranger care thus for me and yet said zanoni if I told thee that I could initiate thee into the secrets of that magic which the philosophy of the whole existing world entreats as a chimera or impostor if I promised to show thee how to command the beings of air and ocean, how to accumulate wealth more easily than a child can gather pebbles on the shore, to place in thy hands the essence of the herbs which prolong life from age to age, the mystery of that attraction by which to awe all danger and disarm all violence and subdue man as the serpent charms the bird, if I told thee all these, it was mine to possess and to communicate, wouldst thou listen to me then, and obey me without a doubt?" It is true, and I can account for this only by the imperfect associations of my childhood, by traditions in our house of. Your forefather, who, in the revival of science, sought the secrets of Apollonius and Parcellus. What? said Glyndon, amazed, are you so well acquainted with the annals of an obscure lineage? To the man who aspires to know, no man has been the meanest student of knowledge should be unknown you ask me why I have shown this interest in your fate? There is one reason which I have not yet told you. There is a fraternity as to whose laws and whose mysteries the most inquisitive schoolmen are in the dark. By those laws all men are pledged to warn, to aid, and to guide even the remotest descendants of men who have toiled, though vainly like your ancestor, in the mysteries of the order. We are bound to advise them to their welfare, nay, more, if they command us to it we must accept them as our pupils i am a survivor of that most ancient and immemorial union this it was that bound me to thee at first this perhaps attracted thyself unconsciously son of our brotherhood to me if this be so i command thee in the name of the laws thou obeyest to receive me as thy pupil what do you ask said zanoni passionately learn first the conditions no neophyte must have at his initiation one affection or desire that chains him to the world he must be pure from the love of woman free from avarice and ambition free from the dreams of even art or the hope of earthly fame the first sacrifice thou must make is viola herself and for what for an ideal that the most daring courage only can encounter the most ethereal natures alone survive thou art unfit for the science that has made me and others what we are or have been for thy whole nature is one fear fear cried glyndon coloring with resentment and rising to the full height of his stature fear and the worst fear fear of the world's opinion fear of the nikos and mervales fear of thine own impulses when most generous fear of thine own powers when thy genius is most bold fear that virtue is not eternal fear that god does not live in heaven to keep watch on earth fear the fear of little men and that fear is never known to the great with these words zanoni abruptly left the artist humbled bewildered and not convinced he remained alone with his thoughts till he was aroused by the striking of the clock he then suddenly remembered zanoni's prediction of the cardinal's death and seized with an intense desire to learn its truth he hurried into the streets he gained the cardinal's palace five minutes before noon his eminence had expired after an illness of less than an hour zanoni's visit had occupied more time than the illness of the cardinal awed and perplexed he turned from the palace and as he walked through the chiaha he saw Jean Nico emerge from the portals of the Prince Die. End of Chapter Ten. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah. Voiceover Solutions dot com.